the glory days are here to say the 80s horror show. Take a stroll down memory lane, it's time to start the show. The gory days, the gory days, the gory days. Welcome to the gory days, the show where we take a stroll down memory slain to remember our favorite horror movies from the 1980s and beyond. Welcome back. It's been a while since I covered American Horror Story 1984's uh, latest season, uh, season 9, 1984. And for those of you who listened to it, you know how... Um, dissatisfied I was that's that's the most uh political term I'll use with the final season and I'm still in the works of putting together a season like full recap of what I thought in total rather than episode to episode more of a macro zoomed out look at uh, what I thought of American Horror Story but until I finish that I'm sitting here with my next guest today who brought an amazing movie I've never seen before if you already looked at the title of this episode you know that we're talking about scream 2 from 1997 uh, right in my wheelhouse I was born uh, listeners I don't know if you know but I was born in 1991 so I would have been about six maybe seven when this movie came out. <laughs> I definitely saw a scary movie at this age, and there were a lot of references to this movie that uh, went right over my head, and frankly, I shouldn't have seen Scary Movie at that age. My parents, they realized their mistake later, but um, I'm getting ahead of myself. My guest, as I mentioned, is here, a recent graduate from Ithaca College all the way from the East Coast on in New York, New York City. If you can be born there, you can be born anywhere. My guest, please welcome for her first time on the Gory Days, first time on a podcast, Jacqueline Borwick. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, uh, you didn't just fly here from New York. In fact, we met uh, in, what was it, Player One uh, over in yeah. West Hollywood, which if you've been there... Maybe maybe you like it. I, I, I wasn't a fan. Uh, I, on paper, it says that they're supposed to have a lot of video games, and uh, it was mostly like, what was it, like pinball games, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, maybe a time crisis, a House of the Dead buried in the corner. Yeah. Wasn't that great? Are you a big gamer? A little bit. Oh, what are you playing these days? Um, not too much as I would like. I, I don't know. I just dabble here and there with different things sure well you're like not a gamer arc. no i'm not a gamer. you're a writer yeah i'm you're a, writer. a screenwriter yeah. so tell us about that you came from ithaca college so uh maybe my listeners are familiar with where that is but that's not on the uh that's not on the island is it that's not in manhattan no that's so it's in upstate new york okay um where a quiet place took place yeah <laughs> yeah exactly it's, so like foresty areas yeah very, i can't picture it it's like about a four-hour drive from manhattan okay. um so it's pretty far out, like in uh, it's near like Canada actually. So is it's that pretty cold? Is that pretty much where you grew up? Is cold East Coast, lots of seasons. Yeah. Okay. I kind of miss that. I can imagine being out here. I mean, it's hot but, well into October yeah. here. Yeah, it's very strange, but so East Coast born and raised. When did you make the move over to the West Coast in L.A.? I moved here about mid-March. Uh, of this year? Yeah. Oh, okay. So, uh, welcome. Yeah. Welcome to Hollywood. Thank you. <laughs> uh, did you ever, like, I don't want to assume, like, when I say I grew up in Irvine, people are like, oh, you must have spent so much time in L.A., and really, I didn't. Mm-hmm. Did you spend all that much time in New York City? Yeah. A bunch, <laughs> okay. actually. I yeah. um, I'm pretty close, just like an hour, half hour drive or train ride. So, yeah, um, like, I would go to shows, Broadway shows, and get coffee and just meet up 
with friends. Sure, and, enjoy a bagel, a nice yeah. slice of pizza. Uh, <laughs> go on, take the L train to the G to the F to the J to get down yep. to uh, Uptown. I don't know. I'm just saying things I, that I I mean, know. there's so much variety. Yeah. Maybe more so than there is here, well, I think. I hope you don't mind me asking, but uh, when I think of New Yorkers, I think of these like, oh, hey, I'm walking here, big, <laughs> mm-hmm. brash, like, forget about it, kind of like, I guess, offensive Italian-American mm-hmm. kind of stereotypes. But um, you seem to have survived all of that and still managed to stay a halfway decent person. Yeah. How do you uh, explain that? <laughs> um, well, I feel like that is a stereotype, and the reality is that I feel like there's only a few people like that that you meet when you actually live there Mm -hmm. like it's not so common seems like it's mostly the taxi drivers yeah yeah (laughs) like the people who make a living off of driving in that awful traffic Mm -hmm. yeah it seems Mm -hmm. awful did you have a car when you were up there i got a car i guess when you're living out of the city it makes more sense to drive away from it rather into it yeah yeah like you said you can just take the the bus or i mean the the subway do you yeah. have uh, family mm-hmm. and friends still out there then? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my parents and my brother are still out there, yeah. So at Ithaca, you studied screenwriting. What does that like curriculum look like? Do you have to write a film as your like final project, dissertation or something? Yeah. Really? Um, oh. So we had part of the screenwriting majors that you have like three different options, whether you want to pursue screenwriting for tv film or emerging media like writing for video games and that podcast that area yeah um so you get to choose would you choose two out of the three so i chose tv and film very cool and the final project senior year is just like writing your final thesis um were you proud of it i was i mean yeah i definitely was that's great because i applied what I had learned from the past four years um, into that project. and If you don't mind me asking, what was the genre for that? Actually pretty relevant to this podcast. It was like suspense and thrillers. and. Have we talked yeah. about this? I'm, did we? I don't think so. Can, no, tell me about it. it. What's the log um, line? I, Unless this is um, something maybe you want yeah, to keep still, under wraps. Yeah, it's still in development. Okay, gotcha. Um, but that's really but cool. Yeah, it's definitely like over time, like... I kind of figured out like what I wanted to write about and I feel feel like when I first started out in the journal the screenwriting major I was really concerned about like what other people might want to see and that didn't really align with what I personally would want to see and so I kind of figured out like what I would want to see myself and that really that like made the idea more sustainable over time. I get what you mean. I feel like that leads kind of into my next question which is like when you're writing in a screenwriting class are they uh, encouraging you to write what you want or are they teaching you what makes money and how to like actually make a living doing this it's more like they cut ke- they keep repeating like and even to this day i still hear people saying like write what you know mm-hmm. yeah but that's kind of hard to practice because <laughs> it just takes time to figure out like what you like yeah and your taste definitely gets refined over time and i felt like it took me writing a lot to kind of figure out like what inspires me and like what I would want to see sure on screen myself yeah I've heard write what you know a lot and I've also heard like the 10,000 hours of practice whatever to be a master at something um, I'm sure you're well on your way there but um the write what you know I feel like has kind of taken on a new uh meaning uh or milieu or whatever um in that in uh 
a representation angle. You know, write what you know is always, in my mind, write from your experience so that it's the most authentic as mm-hmm. possible. And maybe that wasn't always applied to what your specific like racial experience was or gender or sexual orientation. And now it's starting to become more like, if you're a straight white guy, don't write women of color. Mm-hmm. Like you just don't understand that experience. Um, and so I'm happy to hear that uh, you, a phenomenal up and coming writer who I'm sure mm-hmm. will do great things, already has that. Yeah. Uh, I, it's funny that you say that because during the process of coming up with my thesis, I kind of figured out that I liked writing about like my Jewish heritage. And oh. like that was that was like a really interesting area to kind of explore because because it's kind of cathartic yeah, in that way. Definitely. You're taking a like, yeah. introspective deep dive and distilling your life into yeah. themes. Like that takes yeah. a lot of self-awareness. Yeah. That must be tough. I've it never was, done that. Yeah, and it still is, but it's definitely like you said very cathartic and yeah. you really work through some things. I'm curious, does you, it Well, I was just <laughs> I think it's easier to write from like about your own experience and writing about somebody else's right. experience. That sounds easier, like, said than done. Maybe, mm-hmm. I was going to say, that sounds oh, yeah. easy on paper. That comes but... <laughs> with its own challenges. Yeah. Even so. Because yeah. to have that kind of, like, awareness to, like, if you are if you had a, a bad relationship with your mother, for instance, and now you're writing from her perspective, like, that must take so much stepping out of yourself and putting yourself in her shoes and being empathic. There's this movie that um, Shia LaBeouf put out recently, Honey Boy, I mm-hmm. think is what it's called, where it's an autobi- an autobiography, but where he plays his own father in the movie. And I thought just like, how can you write that, let alone perform that? And in some interview I read in maybe Variety or something, how like that saved his relationship with mm-hmm. his father, because now... He truly understands where he was coming from, and, mm. and I, I can't imagine that. Mm. But but you're saying that you've kind of dipped into there that yeah. area a little bit. Does that give you some kind of perspective? Has that improved your relationships with your, your family um, or changed them I, at least? I mean, it's at this point, it's kind of I'm kind of just writing for myself, even, and even like maybe that's all that matters. Yeah, because I think, like you said, it kind of through writing about like family and family troubles like you kind of might develop stronger relationships with estranged family members or whatever your circumstances but I think it's also from my experience I've kind of developed a better relationship with myself even through like writing yeah about my own experiences it's, so. it's very therapeutic yeah. I imagine because yeah. you're if if your writing process is anything like mine, it's very slow and very arduous, and you can't help but feel every word as you're mm-hmm. writing it. And to think that it's coming from a personal experience, uh, that's very impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And so that's that that's what your final project was at Ithaca. Yeah. Okay. So you're in Los Angeles now. Your parents are uh, back in New York. Uh, what was I going to ask? We're still talking about your family still. Uh, I guess they're okay with you leaving home. Like mm-hmm. you're, you're still, are they in the industry at all? Are they in entertainment? No, they're, no. Okay. They're, they're, my mom's a teacher and my dad works in like finance. Yeah. yeah. My parents don't really have any key into the industry yeah. either. My mom worked as uh, an executive assistant at a couple production companies back in the day. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, they, it's tough. It's tough explaining to them uh, what, what you want to do. And like, I mean, frankly, like I look at you and you have the confidence enough to at least say you're a writer when pushed. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
and uh, like how vulnerable that is. Because even like the best writers, some panels I've gone to, the the I don't know if you feel it, but that 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 voice in the back of your head that's telling you that like this is a joke. Go get a real job. You're wasting your time. I'm sure that helps that you went to school for it. I haven't gone mm. to school. Um, not to say that your experience isn't easier yeah. than mine, but that you've. I, at least on the surface, broken past that doubt and that like, well, I've I've done this. I dedicated X years to this. So if I'm wasting my time, that's what my life is, whatever. Like no value judgments. And so that's really impressive. Good for you, Jacqueline. Yeah, uh, but <laughs> but I mean, like, how, do, how does it feel from your perspective? Because I'm on the outside looking in. I mean, like you said, majoring in screenwriting was definitely my training. And I learned a lot through the process, became a stronger writer because of it. But I also deal with that anxiety that everybody else does. Like yeah. if you're if you're not consistently writing, then can you really call call yourself a writer? So, and if but, if you're writing and not getting paid for it, can yeah, you call oh, yourself true. a writer? Like, That's another mm-hmm. layer as well. Yeah. Um, like I mean, but, I can't even think of that layer at this if, point. Yeah, I think if you're just writing, you can call yourself a writer. Period. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I was at a panel recently where they were talking about. Um, kind of something that we mentioned a moment ago of like should I be writing you know what's authentic to me or should I be writing a version of what's authentic to me and the style of what I think will make money and it's like it kind of depends on your style your voice and the what you're trying to tell and I'm still finding my voice and I think it just comes with writing a lot do you feel like you've found your voice and your style no I feel like I'm constantly or is that something Realizing, that no one's supposed to know really ever until you're dead? Then you can say well, they had a style. I think when you have a portfolio, your voice, it kind of like becomes something. Like you can kind of see like trends and like, I guess with like more famous directors and writers, that's more apparent. That's the thing. I feel like we have uh, the like, mm, what's, what's the privilege of time to look at these vast filmographies for people and like... It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that you notice certain things, and then if they're in the next movie, now suddenly they're a style. Whereas if you sat, like, Steven Spielberg down and asked him, like, what is your style? What are the specific Mm -hmm. things you do? I doubt he could, like, pinpoint them in the same way that books have been written on his quote-unquote style. So, like, maybe it's something you don't really cultivate or, like, cognitively uh, or cognizantly. Maybe you're just writing. And the more you write, other people will pick up on things, and that becomes your style. But as long as you don't deviate from what you're doing, mm-hmm. then you're you're still doing Stephen King because mm-hmm. you've been doing it since you were 19 or whatever with the the Gunslinger or whatever his first book was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that perspective. I feel like that's even the case with like directors like Wes Craven, for mm-hmm. instance. Yeah. Um, and like Hitchcock and like other suspense giants. Yes. Yeah. Is that you just kind of stick to your guns. Yeah. Or uh, Kubrick is another big mm-hmm. one. Where I imagine there were some people telling Kubrick to not do certain things or to maybe treat certain actors mm-hmm. better. And he said, no, this is my style. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, Wes Craven is a great segue into uh, the movie we want to talk about. So when we come back, we'll be talking about the movie Scream 2 from 1997. Here with more Jacqueline Borwick, more Kyle Leone, the host of The Gory Days, who I forgot to introduce at the top, uh, when we come back. The Gory Days. 
Welcome back to the Gory Days. Kyle Leone, your host, your host with the most, and my guest, Jackie Borwick. I got it. And the movie we are talking about today is Wes Craven's Scream 2 from 1997. Uh, I'd never seen this movie before. Thank you so much for bringing it to me. Yeah, of um, course. Because I had uh, a couple of people on here who brought Scream to me, and uh, I had seen Scream, so it was fun to relive that. Uh, but and it was funny. The first Scream movie, the like whole third act is one location. The last forty minutes take place in one house. Uh, this one's a little bit different, but directed by Wes Craven, the great Wes Wes, <laughs> the great <laughs> Wes Craven. I got a little Elmer Fudd in there. The great <laughs> Wes Craven. Famous, of course, for doing Last House on the Left, The Hills Have Eyes, A Nightmare on Elm Street, to name a few of his biggest ones. Um, written by Kevin Williamson, who also wrote the first Scream. Music by Marco Beltrami, who also did music for the first Scream. Produced by Conrad Pictures and distributed by Dimension Films, Scream 2 was released on Friday, December 12th, 1997, right here in Hollywood, California. Had its uh, major premiere with Nev Campbell reprising her role as Sidney Prescott, David Arquette reprising his role as Dewey, Courtney Cox, the great Courtney Cox, then Courtney Cox Arquette, uh, she was married to David Arquette at the time, which is kind of cool, as returning as Gail Weathers, the uh, reporter, journalist who wrote a book after the events from the first movie, which is super fun. Jamie Kennedy ugh, is back as Randy Meeks. <laughs> Sorry, I don't like Jamie Kennedy. I like his character in this movie, but him as a person. <laughs> Jerry O'Connell as... Uh, Nev Campbell character Sydney, her new boyfriend, Derek, Derek Feldman, Elise Neal as Nev's friend Hallie McDaniel, the great Timothy Oliphant as Mickey uh, in his first leading role, which I thought was great, Sarah Michelle Gellar, uh, famous from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, as Cece Cooper, my god, this movie has a lot of characters, Liev Schreiber, I love Liev Schreiber, um, as Cotton Weary, Laurie Metcalf as Mrs. Loomis. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen the movie. It's going to be lots of spoilers here. <laughs> Jada Pinkett. Before she was Jada Pinkett Smith as Maureen and Omar Epps from House as uh, Phil. The two people who get killed at the beginning. Whew, that's a big cast, but... For those of you who've seen this movie, you know a lot of them are going to end up dead. But before we get into uh, what happens in the movie, I'd just like to go through a quick timeline. So, first of all... Have you pitched anything? I've never pitched anything before. I guess, have you done it in school? Uh, like, yeah, in, like, classes and maybe unofficially at, like, an internship, but not not beyond that. Okay. Not yet. Well, yeah. that's more experience than me. Yeah. So, like, if, if you can, can you explain to me and the listeners, like, what the parts of a pitch are? Obviously, you're trying to convince someone to invest in your idea based on words, but what else is it? And if you don't know, that's okay. Because I, mean, I don't know. It's definitely convincing people to invest in your project. And... Like, are you expected to have it all cast? At least, like, in your mind? I think you can reference, like, actors. Okay. You might want to play specific characters. But it's not like... It's not like you, you have, have a finished... like an official cast or anything. Okay. No. What about sequels? Do they expect you to have like ideas for franchise? Yeah. They I do. mean, that's super appealing if you huh. do. Cool. It's definitely great if you have like an expanded universe already built up in your head, I think. Because I guess that 
guarantees that if this does well, we don't have to scramble for more ideas that you yeah, already have. Already cool. Built it, yeah. Okay, well, that changes my opinion on. <laughs> I guess that's that, what they did. Yeah, exactly. Here, so. It pays the plan ahead. When uh, Kevin Williamson was audition was auctioning Scream One, he had two outlines for Scream Two and Scream Three in hopes of enticing uh, production companies to want to buy a whole franchise, and it worked. Dimension moved forward with the sequel to Scream while Scream was still in theaters uh, and contracted Williamson for the other sequel, Scream 3, which got made, and maybe we'll do on this podcast, who knows, Uh, which I thought was insane. You have one script, and you're so confident with it that you write two sequels, not knowing if your finished movie is going to get picked up, and it does. So it's like, what... It doesn't hurt to to write a couple sequels or even just outlines or treatments and attach them to your movie. I feel like that was a big learning takeaway for me. <laughs> I mean, I think it's all about gambling. Like you never yeah. know whether something's gonna land or or not. So, but in my mind, something about like slapping on some extra sequels on it made it seem like wow, this guy's a little over ambitious. But it's the opposite. It's like him having that story background seemed to be what dimension responded to because they they would have had to get all three i imagine like when they first got it and then scream one premiered it did well and then they made good on that uh bidding but i don't know Mm -hmm. potential titles for this movie were scream again Mm -hmm. scream louder and scream the sequel i'm happy enough with scream two i was surprised to hear that this movie experienced the first film leak in cinematic history and so far as the internet was involved, maybe there were some other movies where the script was leaked to like a close circle of friends. But this was the first time that when Williamson was moving the uh, script from you know his office to production or whatever, an extra stole the script, 40 pages worth, and posted it on the internet. And unfortunately, Williamson had already developed like... Like I said, 40 pages of the plot, which involved four different killers at the time. The script was originally going to have four killers. Derek, Hallie, which I thought was interesting. They were going to have her uh, the, her black friend be one of the wow. killers, which would be a cool subversion mm-hmm. to the, like, oh, black people die early thing that mm. Omar Epps and uh, Jada Pinkett are talking about at the beginning. Uh, Cotton and Mrs. Loomis, the four of them were originally going to be the killers. So when the script was leaked onto the inter- when the the script was leaked onto the internet, they had to rewrite all of that. And I feel like it kind of justifies the middle part of the movie, which feels a little less structured. In that these pages didn't exist until like the day of shooting, mm. and Wes Craven had no time to think about them. So he's like refining shots and scenes as they're being shot. And that sounds so frantic and awful. Have you ever done production? I haven't really done production. It's more writing. But I, more I, pre-production, yeah. Yeah, I know that um, it's pretty frantic like when you're <laughs> even in the when, thick of it. Yeah. Even when things are like written down and pre-planned ahead on like a spreadsheet and stuff, it's frantic. And you're mm-hmm. always late. And even when you give like 15-minute buffer windows for things, you're always pushing, and you're always two hours overdue. And that's kind of the the job of a good first AD. But I can't imagine what this was like. You're Courtney Cox, for God's sake. You're on Party of Five and Friends, and you're working with this kind of situation where people are running around handing you pages on paper that can't be photocopied, and then they have to destroy them at the end of the day. Like... 
God, it must have been so frantic on set. But despite it all, they made this movie. And it's a great movie. Um, yeah, in fact, uh, in 2017, I love this. Williamson, Kevin Williamson, the writer, claimed that the leaked script of the copy was a dummy draft and that they made lots of <laughs> fake scripts and, like, kind of spread them out to, to inseminate, like, fake news. Oh. Which is... Uh, I call BS yeah, on that. that doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, to Dread Central in 2017, Williams said that uh, they sent out a bunch of dummy drafts with a whole bunch of different endings, with a bunch of different killers. So uh, that was never the intended ending. You fell for it. I feel like... Out of all of the movies in the franchise, oh, you've seen like, them all. Yeah, I've. Um, I just felt like as they went on, they the k- killers like they. It made sense to the story, but now that you explained the the leak to me, it kind of makes perfect sense because I feel like the first movie was more. It made more sense. Yeah. Um, and it was more of a surprise too. Yeah. This one, like. Scream 2 and like all the self-referential self-referentialism like is that a word in the script yeah feels very like everything in this movie is expected uh and in a different way than in the first movie because the whole time in the first excuse me in the first movie they're calling out like oh don't go in there and oh i guess this is the part where i'm supposed to like fall over um and then it does happen in this one it does like feel just as expected it just feels a little less like refined and structured I in my agree. opinion it- I feel like they definitely leaned into the parody of horror. and That's what's interesting about this series is the first one perfectly straddles that line between horror and comedy that I can't firmly call it either. It ends up in like the nebulous thriller category for me Um, because there's just there's not that much gore. There's like I feel like we're talking about the first movie too much, (laughs) but um, let's stick to this movie. I feel like Scream sets itself up as this is the franchise where the killer is always two people and it's a whodunit. It's not like a Nightmare on Elm Street where the killer is always Freddy and we know it's Freddy and it's just how are they going to stop Freddy? Um, it's Or even like uh, uh, Michael Myers, uh, Halloween. A lot of these horror movies at the time had these established killers that was one person well known. And the question wasn't who is it? It's how do we kill them or how do we get away? This one separates itself from all of those by making it a bunch of teens are getting killed, but also it's a whodunit that it's one of the teens who are killing it, which is kind of fun. To be completely honest, I kind of stopped guessing (laughs) at some point Mm. during the movie. Like, they're giving us clues, and they're trying to, like, Mm. give us, like, oh, it could be this person. They're filming us, so it's that. But, I mean, like, I'll just spoil it now. I did not remember that Mickey was a character until the reveal. And I think it's, like, the movie sets itself up in that way so that it shows you Mickey, and then he's gone for long enough that you forget. But when he shows up, you're like, oh, I remember him. Of course, it was him. Because he's the guy with the camera. Um, did you guess who it was? Who did you think it was? I really... Like you said, I... I thought it was Derek, yeah. but they're setting him up so yeah, hard. Oh, yeah, for that, sure. Yeah. I, but I kind of liked that even in all the movies, the common link with the killers was Sydney's mom. And yeah. like that history. I thought that was like a strong element throughout I agree. All, all of the movies. I, I, I hesitate to say that that element saves this movie, but it kind of does. So, um, I mean, we'll just get into it for our first segment, which is, what the hell just happened? 
So we're going to go not beat by beat, but just some of the big moments that happened in this movie. I want to establish first off, even before the intro, se- well, I guess we can talk about the intro section, is that Jada Pinkett Smith and Omar Epps, um, I always do this. I have to make a decision if I'm going to say the actors' names or the characters' mm-hmm. names. So let's say we're going to do the characters' names. So that's Maureen and Phil. Uh, they die at the beginning in a really, like, real-world horror way. That movie theater is so freaking annoying with all the people no one would ever give out masks at a movie premiere (laughs) you're just asking for vandalism and so much like like someone gets stabbed in there i was thinking like someone's getting like raped or something like in that auditorium it is like (laughs) chaos in there and so when maureen gets stabbed and no one knows she's getting stabbed for a long time and still until she climbs up and like screams (laughs) in that way that if you've been stabbed in the lungs that many times i don't think you can scream (laughs) but um you know it's a scary movie uh, I thought it, it like really freaked me out because I was like, oh my God, in a situation like that where it's so loud and rowdy and noisy, I would not know if someone died. <laughs> there could be someone dead on the floor yeah, next to me. They didn't really, it didn't register till like the final moment where she died, literally. And as I was watching it, I was thinking if I was in that theater, I would still assume that this was like part of yeah. someone's prank or an act or something or part of the movie. Um even after she collapses, I don't know what it would take for me to go like, oh, no, that's real. We got to get out of here. Um, so now, with that established, we can say that those were two students at Windsor College where Sydney goes. So Sydney from the last movie was a daughter who, ugh, her story is awful. Her mother was having an affair with the husband of, an- oh, God, what's, how do I break this down? I want to make it as clear as possible. So... Sydney Prescott and Billy Loomis. They were friends. Sydney Prescott's mother slept with Billy Loomis's father, causing Mrs. Loomis, Billy's mom, to leave. Do I have that right? Mm-hmm. Or was it the other way around? That she left and then they started hooking up. I think what? I think Sydney Prescott's mom and Billy Loomis's dad got together, causing Billy's mom to yeah, leave. Yeah. Causing Billy to be really resentful and hateful of Sydney and her mom. And so help me out here. So in the events of that begin scream one, Sydney's mom has been killed by who she thinks was cotton weary. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Leah Schreiber plays cotton weary. The man who was wrongfully accused of killing uh, Sydney's mother. The end of scream one revealed that Billy Loomis killed Sydney Prescott's mom and was about to kill Sydney, but Sydney killed him instead. So now, with Sydney Prescott's mother's killer's true identity revealed, Cotton is released. So I think now we can start. Oh, the last important bit is that Gail Weathers, a journalist who is covering the Ghostface Killer murders, has written a tell all book that got turned into a movie called Stab which is a really fun in-movie reference that's parodying and, like, chronicling the events from screen one as a movie within the movie. Jesus. Okay, I think that's everything. So now we can start this story, which is Sydney and her friends... um, Sydney and her friends Dewey, Randy, Derek, Hallie, Mickey... Yeah, and Mickey are all students at Windsor College. And Gail shows up on the scene again. She's uh, at the press conference... 
trying to ask questions about these two people that died, Maureen and Phil. Okay, I'm doing well so far. (laughs) (laughs) So, as we mentioned, Cotton's been released and is there at the school and... Uh, Gail kind of just thrusts Cotton onto Sydney for an interview, and Sydney gets another punch at Gail, just like in the first movie. There's lots of callbacks. Yeah, yeah. It's more of an open hand slap in this one. But uh, so that's pretty much all that happens there. We go to a house party where we see the sober sister across the street at Omega Beta Zeta is Sarah Michelle Geller, played by Cece, played by Sarah Michelle Geller. And uh, I guess she's talking to a friend about Party of Five, which I thought was funny. She's, mm-hmm. like, talking about the pilot yeah. for that. Long story short, Cece gets killed. She's thrown off of the roof of her uh, sorority house. And the killer chases Sydney. And Derek, her boyfriend, like, intercepts the killer, runs down a hallway, and then they find that he's okay. The killer got away, and he's got a big, like, slice on his arm that just happened to miss all of the important uh, arteries and stuff. Uh, which already raises a bunch of suspicions. So after Derek, Sydney's boyfriend, got his arm sliced, she doesn't trust him at all. And she kind of pushes him away until he sings in public some song from Top Gun, which is super cheesy, but everyone in the auditorium, uh, the cafeteria, like, applauds and gets up on their feet. But that's enough, and she trusts him again. Meanwhile, uh, we've deduced, thanks to Dewey and Gail, that this is a copycat killer. They're killing people that match the names that are kind of similar to the people in Sydney's life. Maureen, Phil, uh, others. These people, Mm -hmm. uh, Billy, whatever. These people are being, uh, or Cece's last name was something that Mm -hmm. had to tie back. I don't know. It's really silly. But after he sings in public and uh, Sydney takes her boyfriend back, Randy and Dewey discuss the three rules for sequels, which we'll talk about later. And that's where they talk about, you know, who's a suspect. Sydney's in a play that she's feeling weird about. And she talks to her director, who's like, use it. You're being hunted and stalked. So use it in this, like, Greek play that we're doing. And uh, that's a really weird situation where she may or may not be killed, like, in that moment with all the other, like, the ghost face killer may or may not be in there. And Sid's boyfriend shows up again, Derek, and God forbid she just wants to be alone, but he's like, so you're pushing me away again. She like, she is going through something, and yeah, God forbid. So, I feel like this is the the weirdest decision in the movie, but they kill Randy. Yeah. Randy was my favorite character, and he was like the only one, even though I don't like uh, Jamie Kennedy, Randy was like my favorite character. And he gets a call on the phone, and he ends up getting like, taken into a van and stabbed to death that definitely seemed manipulated like story wise just just, well just to have like another kill yeah it didn't really add anything it did feel that way it felt like someone looked at the script and was like "Uh uh-oh it's been a while since we killed somebody we should kill somebody yeah and instead of killing the cameraman they kill randy and then the cameraman bounces (laughs) which i thought was great i mean maybe i shouldn't say this hmm but in oh does he come back future movies he kind of comes back uh like in flashbacks or did he survive he like records like video to kind of clue in the other characters like sydney and that's a clever way of um, bringing him back gail stu uh is dewey uh dewey yeah is the the officer yeah yeah who's like walking around like his arm is still in a cast but it's not i'm so yeah. confused like is that i've never broken a bone like that is that what happens to your arm that if you keep it in a cast you can't yeah, bend that it? didn't <laughs> that seemed like 
not very correct. <laughs> yeah. I love that he survived. I mean, I love that he survives the events of this movie too. Like I kept joking afterwards, like what if like by, so- what if by scream four, he's like in a wheelchair, <laughs> he keeps getting like almost killed. Is he, is he in a wheelchair by scream four? That'd be funny. I don't think so. I no, mean, I don't think so. Either. Um, but with Randy did, was there like a reference to his initials? Oh. Or was that just like a random... Oh, why? What are his initials? Randy? Well, you said it like it referenced the initials of like the people that were killed. Oh. Kind of similar, but... Yeah. Um, I think that only refers to... Let's see what the characters were. The characters that died, uh, it was Maureen Evans. Maureen is Sydney's mother's first name. Phil Stevens. I think Stevens was... Uh, what was the other? Stu? I think it was his last name. Stu Stevens, oh, and yeah. I think that's the the correlation. Okay, and then yeah. Billy Loomis isn't isn't happening either. Um, that takes a little reach. It was a really dumb yeah. scene, yeah, because she's doing it in front of police officers, yeah. and she's like explaining <laughs> to them, "Can't you see? I'm the journalist. I connected the dots." Yeah, it's kind of funny. So then, this is probably the silliest scare. But when they're at the library, it's 1997, so we have to try and include technology any way we can. <laughs> but the I am scare, the instant message, is so cheesy, mm-hmm. and I love how big the text has to be for the scare to like really yeah. register for us. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that's where we see Cotton in the library, and here's where they really set up that like. Cotton doesn't take no for an answer. He really wants money. He's trying to strong arm her into taking a, an interview with, is it Diane Sawyer, I think? Mm. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, Liam Schreiber's a scary guy. And he does a good job of coming across as like, yeah, you've been acquitted, but maybe you shouldn't have. Like, mm-hmm. maybe you are capable of killing somebody. And it turns out he is later. Um, but, uh, he gets arrested and then let go almost immediately. Uh, and that's that's where we get to our scene where Gail convinces Dewey that we need to go to the film school and watch this footage. So they go to like the film department and they watch some footage, get bored and smooch. <laughs> and so they're like smooching hard on top of that uh, uh, desk, I guess. It's one of those giant uh, auditorium like classrooms where it's like stadium seating. And this is a really cool shot where you see footage from other angles, from other shots throughout the movie. And you're like, wait. And then it cuts to a shot of Dewey and (laughs) Gale behind them, like live footage. And I thought at the time I was like, that takes some serious AV like know-how to be able to splice pre-recorded footage to live footage, which makes sense because Mickey has a video camera all the time, so it makes sense that he would be pretty AV savvy. But Dewey falls down the stairs, and uh, Gail is chased by the uh, the killer until she's locked in like a sound booth that is so ridiculously soundproofed because she can't hear Dewey banging and screaming until he like uses the microphone. And then we see Dewey get stabbed, and I thought he was dead. Every mm-hmm. time they kill Dewey, I think he's dead. Mm-hmm. Um, I use air quotes <laughs> for listeners out there who can't see. This is an audio medium. All right, come on, let's race yeah, to the end. It definitely becomes like a gaff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I, yeah, I have to imagine. Um, so Sid's leaving town, and she's got a couple of bodyguards that we established earlier. She says goodbye to her uh, boyfriend Derek, and as they leave, 
all of her frat, all of uh, Derek's frat brothers kidnap him, string him up to like the the theater son that they somehow stole and got over to the frat house, and it is so weird how they have him tied up to the thing and they're like forcing drinks and they're writing on him and it just. It just seems like yet another situation where things could get really bad really fast, but thankfully they don't in that way at least. Um, The killer kills the detectives. Derek is at the party, so it can't be Derek. Uh, We've got the killer suddenly stealing the car from the detectives. He slices one of the detectives' throat after he says, don't ask, don't tell, which is pretty funny. (laughs) And then he goes like on a joyride trying to get the other cop off of the hood of the car and impales him through the back of the head through like some giant rebar and oh my god i can't i can't deal with this in movies when people are suffering like that Mm -hmm. and he's not dead and Mm -hmm. i i remember like holding my clipboard up to my face and just being like oh my god die please just die oh my (laughs) god let him die please and he does but he's like and i hate that like that was the most cringy death for me that's the one part of well it's a big part of horror like i don't like seeing people suffer like i really like thrillers because there's some ambiguity about like the scare and it's kind of up to your imagination to fill in are those the kind of scares you write yeah okay that's definitely what i like to watch and what i like to write yeah i don't like jump scares either like it's not rewarding to artificially manipulate your audience into being tense through music and well i guess that's all film but you know what Mm -hmm. i mean like these high strings someone opening a cupboard there's nothing there they close it they turn around oh no Mm -hmm. it's your husband you forgot your wallet like Mm -hmm. i hate those Mm -hmm. um and simultaneously yeah i hate the ones where it's just gratuitous maiming like oh you're gonna cut off my arm and i'm screaming now you're gonna cut off my other arm and i'm screaming you're gonna cut off my legs and i'm screaming it's like less is more in my opinion Yeah, i agree i don't really know what that's even contributing to cinema gore really yeah (laughs) Yeah. just shock value it's something that like uh oh what is his name um uh the guy who did a hostel you know all those eli Roth. Roth. yeah yeah like just just gallons of blood and people screaming and if i was ever into that like in high school i guess i've grown beyond that because there's it's not adding anything you're right i really appreciate eli roth though like i definitely agree oh with you but i I really like his like opinions on cinema and but I definitely agree with you. I don't know what I feel like and, I like him as a writer. Yeah. But as a, a director, yeah. he just loves like he if Saw introduced torture porn, Eli Roth was like the period on it. Like torture porn with Hostel and uh Hostel Part Two and Wrong Turn and um what was that other one where people had like the flesh eating virus? Mm. That one was really gross Uh, but also kind of (laughs) cool um yeah i don't want to get on an eli roth uh (laughs) uh uh, binge here but maybe we should do some of those movies down the road um yeah so i I like those scares too i like scares that are that reward your audience for like the for sticking with the character and then like oh my god how how far are they willing to go to to save their son or like how much flesh are they willing to lose to survive like Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff where where it serves uh, not a pur- it doesn't have to serve a purpose but it has to like contribute something mm-hmm. to the story or to the character development like 
I'm fine with the character losing a limb, you know? It's just like they have to kind of like use that pain of like, okay, I've sacrificed a pound of flesh. Now I'm free to redeem myself or whatever. Yeah, like so in that way. Kind of change like their how they kind of move forward in the story, but if it's just somebody dying. Yeah. That's not really contributing. Well, anything. losing a limb specifically in my mind is a great like um uh, it's a it's a great way to demonstrate that your character's uh, opinions are reformed because they physically have to change the way mm-hmm. they act now. And so, if if they aren't going to choose to be different from now on, they have no choice. They will be different yeah. from now on. So yeah, I like that. Um, saw notwithstanding, <laughs> I don't think he gets to choose after he saws his leg off. Um, oh Jesus, no, I forgot about Saw Seven. Ugh. So, uh, Sid leaving town, she gets the car. Uh, anyway, this is probably my favorite sequence of Sid and Hallie climbing over the body to get out of the car. I was on, like, the edge of my mm-hmm. seat because I, I knew Sydney was get out was going to uh, get out safely, but I was convinced that Hallie was going to get grabbed as she's, like, climbing over him. Yeah. But she doesn't. Yeah. And it extends that tension so much further for when Sydney goes, and she's like, no, I have to go back. I have to take the mask off. And, of course, he's gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was <laughs> I was that guy where I was like, just take his mask off. It'll take two seconds. Mm-hmm. Just take his mask off. Even after she honks and he doesn't wake up, like... She's still careful after that. I was I like, know. no, you honked. You can go now. Yeah. <laughs> and you said in the earlier earlier on about the leaks that, mm-hmm. was it Hallie was? Yeah, that Hallie was going to be one wow, of the that killers. that changed the whole yeah. direction. I imagine yeah. if this scene was the same or if it had been changed. Because I think it's, maybe they saved that for the later movies. But instead of having two killers, have everyone be gaslighting mm-hmm. Sydney. Like, everyone but Gale and Dewey. Instead and that, of two, yeah. it could be, like, five killers. But. At some point, I kind of want Sydney to kind of take the lead Ooh. as, like, maybe not the killer, but something adjacent to that would well, be interesting. Do you mean kind of like in a, Lin- uh, not Linda Hamilton, um, uh... Uh, what is, Jamie Lee Curtis way in uh, the most recent Halloween where she kind of takes back the yeah, power and, and gets to be her own hero? yeah. That kind of happens but at I the mean, end of this I'm one. I'm sure, speaking of, like, psychology, like, this, all this stuff probably really messes, messed up with Sydney's psychology. Pushing a character this far. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure, in reality, that would appear in Maybe she becomes a writer. <laughs> yeah. Because that's a lot of trauma. Yeah, you, like, with, with each movie, she kind of, like, recovers pretty quickly. And I'm like, at some point, th- this has to really affect somebody. Yeah. Like after the first movie where her boyfriend reveals to have killed her mom, you think that would be like, (laughs) I'm not going to have boyfriends for a few like years, but she waits maybe two. This movie says it takes place two years after the first one, but she has a well-established relationship with Derek. So it's safe to say that it happened within two years. I'm all for characters having their own agency like if she wants she can have another boyfriend if she wants personally i would need a little bit more time before trusting somebody like that (laughs) i think i definitely wouldn't want to see her going into hiding but just maybe having more access to like tools and like things to defend herself yeah the safe house angle is is a really fun idea yeah 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 but let's save those for theory canal (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so uh let's race to the end here yeah, let's just skip it. So, uh, for whatever reason, uh, 
not Nev Campbell was Sydney. Sydney goes to the theater, <laughs> the same theater that uh, she was performing her bizarre play in, and uh, the music from earlier is playing uh, a Danny Elfman score, ironically enough. And the killer is here, but from the ceiling descends her boyfriend Derek, strung up from the same thing that was at the frat party. That's I'll save it for Mystery LLC, but that's one of my biggest questions: is <laughs> how did that get there? Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway. Derek is strung up, and the killer reveals himself to be Mickey, finally. And what he's saying seems to heavily imply that Derek was in on it, and that Derek and Mickey were in cahoots, but Derek keeps saying, like, he's lying, uh, I would never hurt you, and before we can confirm this, Derek shoots him. I mean, um, uh, Mickey shoots him. So Derek dies, strung up, never really getting to hard answer whether or not he was part of it. I can't remember if there are lines afterward that explain it, but but anyway, uh, Derek's dead. Mickey's here. His plan, Mickey's plan is to blame the movies and have like an insanity defense. And <laughs> on paper, it sounds like it would work yeah. in this screwed up like legal system of ours. But unfortunately, the real... There's always two killers in, in these movies. So in this movie, the second killer is... Billy's mom, Mrs. Loomis, which is like a no-brainer. But what's not a no-brainer is that she's in the movie. She's been in the movie like a few (laughs) times. And in fact, she's Debbie Salt. The reporter that went up to Gail at the very beginning and told her like, oh, I'm such a big fan of yours and kept popping up in like bits uh, throughout the film to talk to Gail. That's uh, that was Debbie Salt. Actually, Mrs. Loomis, Billy's mom from the first movie. So Eagle-brained viewers, listeners may remember that Billy's mom didn't die. She ran away. She ran off and she was nowhere to be found. But I guess she heard that her son got killed at the end of the first movie and so came to hunt down Sydney and get her revenge. So this is where this silly movie really salvages or salvages itself with this really grounded, like, universal thematic adult horror of... I'm talking from Mrs. Loomis's perspective of my husband cheated on me with that girl's mother. And then that girl killed my son. I am in full right, full righteous, rational reasoning to go out and exact revenge on that person to save my son and my honor or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you can't help but like identify with a part of that, that this person is broken and has been pushed to a psychotic point. And I'm not trying to like, I'm not trying to uh, make excuses for a serial killer here. I am trying to shed light on a very complex character who is erased without any, like uh, any more development. Like Mm -hmm. this is a amazing character who's been pushed to this. And I would have loved to have seen her and, uh, Sydney be able to speak a little bit more, but that's not the story this movie wants to tell. It's a summer slasher blockbuster, so she's the killer, she's bad, that's it. She's not vindicated at all. In my opinion, yeah, she has, like, yeah. a leg to stand on. There's, like, no moment... It's just, she's crazy. Um, Isn't she crazy? Yeah, like, we... It's revealed that she's the co-killer. And, yeah. And then she's, like, killed. Like, Immediately after. Well, yeah, yeah, because she, like, kind of sets up that, oh, I'm the mastermind, too, that uh, Mickey wouldn't have done any of this if I didn't tell him to, and my plan was always to pin all of the deaths on Mickey, 
And she's, she, it's like a throwaway line that she confirmed she was the one that killed uh, Randy, but I guess all the others were Mickey. Um, I have another segment for that, but uh, really quick, Cotton shows up, saves the day, shoots uh, Mrs. Loomis through the neck, uh, and then Mickey gets up for one last scare, and Cotton, does he shoot Mickey too? Or does, does, uh, does Sydney get to shoot Mickey? That second time. I think everyone does. I think what yeah. happens is he gets up and they all shoot and yeah. he just kind of flies back from the impact of all those bullets. Onto the like the theater. The rocks. I something. love that. So yeah. you you've been in theater or at least seen theater yeah. before, right? Yeah. Those blocks are soft <laughs> and light. And yeah. they're supposed to be. Am I supposed to am I supposed to assume that this theater company built actual stone walls? Yeah. Because, because yeah, it's it's funny at the end when Sydney's running around backstage and like pulling uh, wires and and levers and chopping things to just make theater chaos kill uh, Mrs. Loomis. But um, it's you know she pops up for one last scare, gets shot through the th- throat by uh, Cotton, and uh, Gail was there too. She got shot in the shoulder and fell into the orchestra pit. Um, and at the time, I was like, oh crap, she's gonna suffocate from all the like smoke. Mm-hmm. Down there, uh, those those things can asphyxiate people, but no, she's fine. And that's Scream too. So, my first big question for our next segment, which is uh, Mystery LLC, is how the hell does Derek get from the frat party tied up to that sun to the ceiling, the roof of the theater as quickly as it happens? It's a rhetorical question, unless you yeah. you have some head. I cannon. don't think there's. An explanation. I think it's just like movie I think it, yeah, exactly. Magic. I think it's a sim- yeah. uh, a symptom of that problem of like crap. We lost forty pages. Yeah. Let's just like do what we can. People aren't going to like analyze this. I feel like a lot of this movie requires like suspension of disbelief. Oh, big time. Yeah. So I mean, in some cases it's appropriate, but other times that you're just like that doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> my, my other question, and if you have any questions, feel free to just like chime in. Uh, what's the timeline for this movie? Is it a week, a month, mm. uh, a quarter, a semester? I would say like oh, It's got to be week. like a week, yeah, right? Yeah, I would say a few days. Like yeah. all these people are killed because otherwise, if it was stretched on longer, I imagine like, you know, news cycles wouldn't care for a while and then it would happen again. But the news is floating around the whole time. So I'd have to assume that this all happened within a week. <laughs> And I can't imagine Sydney wanting to stay here after all of this has ended. Like, oh, great. My boyfriend's dead. <laughs> um, and now I just get to finish my time at college with all of my buddies. Like, no, I'm out of here. I'm sure, like, the whole, the first scene at the movie theater must have been, like, on the weekend or Friday. Yeah. And then everything else following. Oh, was, was throughout the week. I would. That makes sense. I would think so, yeah. But if that's the case, there are two ragers in one oh, week. Okay. <laughs> I mean, which maybe is possible. It's a couple of weeks. <laughs> it's possible. You could have I mean, two it's ragers. college. Exactly. So maybe. Yeah. I, where are sense. they supposed to be is my next question. It's supposed to be Windsor College, which is fake, but I don't remember where the I first movie might... take place. Is it California? I believe so. Because, I mean, if it snows, it doesn't take place in the winter. Do the other movies have seasons? I don't think that's the story, really. No. It's mostly about kids in a house. Yeah. It's not about being outside. Mm-hmm. Or rather, like, college campus or... I don't know. The first one was a house. They were in high school, right? Second one's mm-hmm. college. Is the third one she's an adult? Yeah. Oh, cool. And then okay. fourth, it's like the high school adult. Reunion? 
No, um, so it's so Sydney is like an adult, and but I think so. Part of it takes place in high school because Sydney's niece is part of the story. Oh, okay, that's a fun way yeah. to do it. So I didn't know she has a sister or a brother. They probably say that in the other movies. Maybe okay, maybe it was an <laughs> Sydney's aunt or something. I'm sorry, They're, I'm not trying yeah, to put you on the spot. <laughs> Yeah, I forgot. I no problem. Don't and then listen they made to a, me. And then they made a TV show, didn't they? There was a screen MTV show, but it was like in the distant future, like today, yeah. right? It didn't really compare, in my opinion. Okay. Because it wasn't the same story. It was just no, the same like different. themes and stuff. Yeah. And the mask looked different, I remember. People it w- having... wasn't as scary yeah. as like the iconic ghost mask. Like that's just so specific. Yeah, it really it's is. so scary. Like, even now. Yeah. The idea, because I love that element in this movie that that costume exists in real life, and it's just anyone could own that costume, and that's kind of extra scary, is that, like, it's just a costume, and, like, yeah. someone that could very well be the killer could not be at any moment, or could be, yeah, it's, it's Anybody it's great. can put it on. Exactly. Like, you never know who's underneath. Probably someone you know. Yeah, yeah it could which be. which is freaky, and that's another thing they bring up a couple times. Uh, so there's a piece of trivia that I found that I went back and confirmed, but all it did was raise a million questions instead of make me think like, oh, that's interesting. So Matthew Lillard played Stu in the first movie, who was one of the two killers. He dies in that movie, but he has a cameo in this movie. So help me make sense of that. At 35 minutes, around 35 minutes in this movie, Matthew Lillard, who played Stu in Scream, is seen in the background at the sorority party that Sydney and Hallie attend when they meet um, the two sisters, the two sorority sisters, uh, one played by Portia de Rossi. And in the background, Stu gives a friendly hug to a guy who has his back to the camera. The guy he's hugging with his back to the camera is Mickey who turns out to be the second killer in this movie. So the second killer in Scream 1 is hugging the killer in this movie, even though the killer in Scream 1 died in Scream 1. That's not a fun cameo. I and you're having them interact with other characters? That's creepy. <laughs> it's confusing as hell. And the only way this would make sense is like if this movie took place during the events of the first one, but it can't because that was two years ago. Yeah, and they get older so like, why sitting. include this <laughs> these are all There's rhetorical like, questions uh, yeah i don't that's such an He's interesting there. thing I'm... i wasn't even aware of it's so bizarre yeah and i can't even think of like a a fun like in production reason like oh matthew lillard was on set that day and they were like oh wouldn't it be funny if you were just in the background but the, it no you can't do that if you want to have him make a fun cameo, then he has to be like a guy with a mustache in the background or something. Especially if he was a major character in the that first is so movie. Creepy. It's so weird. That's funny. You call it creepy. Yeah, I call it I, stupid. I mean, it. It's the combination of creepy and stupid. Do you say creepy because you're putting together some kind of headcanon where Stu survived and yeah. like advised these killers like on it, killing Sydney? Because I think that's yeah. more interesting. Like, it's reminding me of The Shining and, like... Oh, and Dr. Sleep? Yeah, well... (laughs) But The Shining and how Mr. Bojangles' character kind of advises Danny on his Shining, or...? Well, that, like, at the ending, Danny, like, is in the background of... Well, he's in the front of the the picture, right? 
Oh, Danny isn't, but um, uh, no, oh, not Jack. Danny. Jack yeah, is. Jack. Yeah, Jack, Jack Torrance Jack. is. Yeah. yeah, that would be amazing if yeah. little Danny Torrance was oh like God. in the back background yeah. of that. I would, my <laughs> mind would explode. Yeah. My mistake. <laughs> no worries. Did you have any other questions for this movie? Was anything? Maybe some more stuff will come up as we go. But yeah. So, uh, right off the bat, I thought it was interesting. I didn't realize that all of the scenes of the movie Stab, which is the movie within this movie, were all directed by Robert Rodriguez, mm. who um, is famous for doing uh, From Dusk Till Dawn. And uh, let's see, he was he contributed the Planet Terror segment of uh, Grindhouse with Quentin Tarantino. And he did all the Spy Kids movies. And playing Drew Barrymore's characters and Skeet Ulrich's characters in Stab, the movie, are Heather Graham and Luke Wilson. In it's so funny. I love that the only scene, well, like one of the only scenes we see of Stab is the worst scene in Scream, which is super funny, where Sydney goes to Skeet Ulrich, uh, goes to Billy and is like, or no, Billy comes to Sydney and says, I know you're sad about your mom, but you just got to get over it. Like when my mom left, I, I just got over it, okay? And she's like, your mom left. Mine's dead, six feet underground. How dare yeah. you? And she walks away and he's like, stupid. And like, that's in the original movie. And I think that was my favorite quote from that, mm-hmm. <laughs> from that movie. So it's fun to see Luke Wilson perform it. And I feel like it's Wes Craven going like, yeah, that scene's really stupid. Yeah. <laughs> Um, another fun thing is uh, Courtney Cox and David Arquette began dating during this movie. Like I said, they got married and then divorced. I think I said they were already married at the time, but they were dating during this movie. And Gail Weathers mentions that she's had some uh, leaked nudes and that like, oh, no, that's just my face. It was Jennifer Aniston's body, which is super funny because <laughs> Courtney Cox and Jennifer Aniston yeah. were both on Friends. Mm-hmm. And apparently that happened in real life oh. is mm-hmm doctored nudes of Courtney Cox's face with Jennifer Aniston's photos got released like before wow. this movie came out and so that's a fun like in-world mm. reference to it um, and then finally the last Friends reference is Gail saying that the actor who plays Dewey in Stab is David Schwimmer another character who mm. plays uh, is it her brother on Friends? David Schwimmer play- is Courtney Cox plays Phoebe right? Yeah. Okay and Phoebe's brother is Ross so yeah David yeah. Schwimmer mm-hmm. yeah which is funny so that's that's all the things that I thought were fun. Why don't we move into uh, this part that I wanted to discuss, which is Randy's rules. So in each movie, I don't know if he does it for the third movie. Maybe it's in his videos that you're mentioning. Mm-hmm. But um, he has these rules for what makes, in the first movie, a good scary movie. For this one, makes a good sequel. Uh, maybe for the third one, I don't know. But um, his rules for here are, number one, the body count is always bigger. Number two, death scenes are more elaborate with more blood and more gore. And number three, if you want your films to be a successful franchise, never, ever, and he gets interrupted and Dewey talks to him. But apparently from the trailer, we hear the full line, which is, if you want your films to become a successful franchise, never, ever, under any circumstances, assume the killer is dead. Mm -hmm. Which is fun because at the very end... Mrs. Loomis doesn't get a chance to get one more scare in. Nev, uh, Sydney shoots her in the head, double tap, and she's like, just in case. And I was like, God damn. Like, that's the Sydney I want to see. Mm-hmm. You're right. I want to see yeah. her, like, taking the power. So it's kind of like a fun in reference to that he doesn't get to finish that last line. He just says, if you want your films to become a successful franchise, never, ever. Because the joke is that there is no way to ensure that a horror franchise will be successful. It's mm-hmm. just kind of luck. 
Um, but so I want to discuss with you if you agree with this, if what makes a, a uh, the rules for a sequel for a horror movie sequel is the body count is bigger. I'm trying to remember what the body count for the first movie was, but this one we've got 10 people dead. And I don't remember anything being gorier in the first movie than Drew Barrymore's body getting like vivisected and all of her mm -hmm. guts coming out. Yeah. But in this one, we've got a dude sl like impaled through the back of the head. We've got multiple stabs onto Randy and uh, we've got the head stab of Omar Epps' character Phil in the beginning. Uh, there's no real blood about it, but still getting shot through the throat is pretty, like, gory. Um, so I feel like it satisfies it in both body counts bigger and death scenes are more elaborate, more gore. Does mm. this apply to all horror sequels? I'm trying to think of horror sequels that I've... I feel like it's true just by virtue of it's the next one. Yeah. So, like, if you just do it the same or, God forbid, less, then how is this, like, the next level? Mm -hmm. And maybe writers kind of like, I wonder if writers feel kind of pigeonholed in that way when you want to make a sequel. In my opinion, it feels like there's there's two mainstream sequels and then there's a bunch of outliers that are good. But the two mainstream sequels are you take five or six characters, certainly not the entire cast, but five or six, including the main character that everyone loved from the first one. You take a handful of the themes that everyone loved from the first one and you bottle them up in a location that is fun and new and different, but is impermanent, and they're just going to hang out there for this movie. And mm -hmm. then the status quo will be returned, and everything will be great for the third one or whatever, but that's what they're going to do. And then the other option for mainstream sequels is to just do everything to the nth degree. Like, oh, was there a, a, a big dance scene in the first one? Then there's an even bigger dance scene in this. And was there, like, a, a, a big fight? Then there's a bigger fight. And if there was... Um, some wacky cultural characters. There's going to be a whole race of them in this one and stuff like that. And this movie kind of falls into that second one where there aren't more killers, but there are more deaths. There's way more characters. There's so much more going on. But at the same time, it just feels like we were talking about before. Loose? Just kind of like they're juggling a bunch of things up in the air. The Randy death just feels like a, a shoehorned in plot point. Uh, you seem to have more of a connection to the Scream franchise. How do you yeah. feel how this one stands out among all of them? I really agree like with what you're saying. Um, Thank you. I feel like it's not as solid as like the first film. And I'm curious, like I would have loved to see like the original version of Me the too. script with Hallie and Four what, how that would have fit in. Yeah. Um, and Like you said, I would have loved to have like, Hallie, you know, identify herself as one of the killers because we don't necessarily see that um, with, like, black characters. Like, they yeah. always die immediately. And that even happened in this movie. Even and it would have they... been, like, an interesting turn of events to have her come back and yeah. reveal herself. It would have been in that fun. way. I don't know. if It's, like, from a... I am all for, like, I love that the killer, the, the like, the real mastermind is not just a woman, but a mother. Like, that's, I love to see that kind of representation. But the only characters who have real agency are Gale and Sydney kind of, like, ebbs and flows out of it. There's a lot of times where things happen to her, and then there's other times, specifically when she's dealing with her boyfriend, where she's making hard decisions 
and standing by them and having the people around her just kind of. But, like, when she goes to Gus and tells her, I don't want to do this, and Gus, this, you know, old white man tells her, do it anyway. And then um, Cotton Weary, you know, like, kind of getting that scene where he's, like, got her up against a wall and she's trying to leave and he's, like, really pressing her. Like, I, I wonder if they ever realize that later, but that... They they have they have to pick a lane with Sydney. Either make her like steeled by all of this, or make her a wilting flower. And I, I can't. Agree. Yeah, I can't yeah. decide. I don't think they can decide what they want. It feels like they want both, and they get neither. Yeah, that's spot on. I. Oh, the reviews are in. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I. I think they definitely have to commit to one over the other because she can be like the victim in the first movie, but then she kind of has to overcome that. And, and I feel like the yeah. only way, that's a great point. Um, and I feel like the only way they do that is by, she has caller ID now. And that's like the one thing she learned from the last movie. But I was <laughs> hoping, cause she sees that someone calls her and goes like, do you, do you like scary movies? And he goes, she, she calls him out and she says his name right away. And she hangs up. I was like, Oh, she's got her wits about her. She's got some tricks and like stuff to avoid that situation. But that's literally it. And it's just like wiped away and she's basically the same character again. Like nothing happened. Like she doesn't remember it. Uh, yeah. She relies a lot on like the other characters. Mm -hmm. She seems she, disinterested in her own yeah. story. Gail's more interested in yeah. Sydney's story. I don't even know if Sydney's that interesting of a lead. Okay, I'm glad you said it. Because frankly, <laughs> she is like, she's a great actor. Yeah. She does her lines great. That said, the script itself does not give her enough to do. I agree. And that makes her uninteresting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do they fix that in the later movies? Or is she always kind of just this, like, things are happening to me? Yeah. More of that. Yeah. Unfortunately. I think, like, Gail is more interesting, in my opinion. She's kind of like the unofficial lead yeah. of these movies. Because... If Sydney is this beacon for bad things to happen, Gail is the hero. Even if in this one she gets kind of, she's literally pushed out of frame mm. <laughs> um, and then gets to pop up for afterward. Like, that's a shame that, because that would be really great. When I look at the poster for this movie and it's the two women in the background, I thought it was Gail and Sydney. But it's actually Maureen, Jada Pinkett's character in Sydney, mm -hmm. which makes me think, wow, Jada Pinkett had a really good negotiator like yeah. for this contract. <laughs> uh, she gets to be in the movie at the beginning. She gets that big scream, which in my trivia turns out she fought for. They were just going to have her die and then learn later. But she wanted that like big moment. So good for her. Uh, but the poster has her and Gail is definitely the, the other heroine in this movie. I would love to see Gail and Sydney like back to back like holding off some like killer or something but i don't know yeah, i didn't seems, get that i feel like the story in general is pretty like fragmented mm -hmm. in terms of the character side of things like yeah. there's it seems like a large part of it they're like on their own or separated yeah separated yeah and they're not being developed. Like, yeah. the tiny bit of development is Gale and Dewey's relationship. And even that never gets, like, fully actualized. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, you can't call it development when her boyfriend... I'm talking about Derek. Like, the, the development between, oh, uh, 
Sydney needs to learn to trust people again. She needs to learn to let people in. Mm-hmm. We don't know if if he was deserving to be let in. Mm-hmm. Was he a killer? Was he not? He certainly was creepy. Like the I don't know about you and um, personal displays or uh, public displays of affection, but. I'm curious, how would you feel if uh, your SO got up on a table when you were mad at them and wanted some distance? They got up on a table in the middle of a cafeteria and started singing to you. Which, what would, how would you feel? Uh, very uncomfortable with that. <laughs> would you immediately take them back? Would no. you wrap them up in your arms and say, I was wrong? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's they what would pisses to, me off yeah, about Sydney. They would have to do more convincing that would make me more mad that would make me be like oh god i made the right decision you have no idea who i am if you thought this would work this this is further evidence that i feel like she given all everything that she's gone through i feel like she trusts a lot of people when they don't even deserve it yeah yeah she lets the weirdest people into her life I wish we could have seen like more of her and Hallie's relationship because she seemed like the one person that she mm-hmm. could talk to about this stuff. It was her roommate, yeah, for God's sake. And that would have made the reveal of her being the killer even more... Surprising. Yeah. Yeah. And more like emotionally yeah, devastating because it's like, oh my God, I let you into my life and you're not a man looking for to get in my pants. You were just a friend and you're still the killer. But they would have had to find yeah. some weird way to tie it back to the mom again. I wonder oh, how the script yeah. did it. It must have done it pretty well. Yeah. Because, like, Mrs. Loomis, was she paying the killer, Mickey? Or was Mickey just ready to kill? Did she hate Sydney too? I think he just wanted to kill. Yeah. And 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 Mrs. Loomis, like, picked up on that and, like, enabled that and was like, yeah, 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 you can kill, but you got to kill these people mm. and in this way. I feel like that's something else that kind of just gets left. Yeah. To add on to the other point before, I like people always say like if you have like a friendship breakup, like that's even more devastating than breaking up with like a significant other. So I think Hallie coming in at the end as a killer would have been, like you said, would have been like a very emotional charge to see. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of yeah, what disappointed been? <laughs> that that doesn't exist in real life. It makes but... me think of um, a French horror film that I watched called High Tension. Have you seen that? I haven't. I would highly no. recommend okay. it, but I'm not going to tell you to watch it. I don't like to tell people to watch it. I just <laughs> think it's a good movie. Maybe you would enjoy it if you saw it. But mm-hmm. um, it's done. It's shot in a way that it's two women on a like, hitchhiking trip across Europe, and they get picked up by a crazy person who kidnaps them um, and locks them up. And long story short, the reveal at the end is that the killer is one of the two women who thinks, who has like, you know, schizophrenia or whatever. And like thinks they're a kill, like they're in love with the the other woman. And it's this like crazy, Mm. just mind screw of a movie. But, um, that idea of, like, the person you are close friends with is actually trying to murder me mm. is something, like, Get Out did really well. Mm-hmm. Of, like, oh, my God, my my lover, let alone my friend. Um, and in that one, in fact, the friend is the savior. Mm-hmm. So that kind of moves us into uh, the the next segment, which is Screaming Themies. We're racing to the end here. We already talked about the theme of sequels here, so I'd like to talk about the theme of uh, stalking in this movie. So I, I am... 
fortunate that I've never been a subject of stalking, and I'm I'm hoping that you weren't uh, or ever experienced anything like that. But if anyone out there has, I'm really sorry for you, and I'm sorry for movies like this making light of it because stalking is not a funny thing. And it's not something that like, oh, you're at school and you look out the window and you see someone, you look back and they're gone and it's like, ooh, how spooky. No, stalking ruins lives. And I feel like it's downplayed in this movie and how calm Sydney is in general yeah. with this whole situation. Because it's one thing to be stalked, that's scary enough, but to be stalked by someone you know wants to kill you, I feel like would make you go to a safe house, would make you stay at the police station for 24, 48, 72 hours. But... Something about this movie implies to me as a viewer that stalking is not that big a deal. It's just this yeah. annoying thing that happens to, to pretty women sometimes. I think that's a good point because, like like I said earlier, like Sydney recovers pretty quickly yeah. and you don't really see the psychological effects like with that her mom's death might have had on her and stalking and... yeah. Dealing with a like murderer head on, and where that could be an opportunity to present Sydney as like really hardened by these experiences, or has just found a way to cope, it just makes it seem like she doesn't care. Like I it's agree. like, oh, that thing happened. Huh. And yeah, I feel like she can recover quickly, but there has to be like a setback. There but there was never scars. Yeah, yeah, that was never really explored no like she's even just just as physically prepared to beat up gail like she's the same person mm -hmm. she's just a little older two years in my opinion like people have taken longer than that to deal with traumas much smaller than this so mm -hmm. that's that like i said that could either be an opportunity to show she's really strong or that she's gone through whatever mm -hmm. so that she can be at this place but they don't do either it's a missed opportunity the other theme is the one of revenge specifically mrs loomis but also Cotton. It's set up that um, right at the end there, Cotton has like a crisis of faith, or at least it's implied where Mrs. Loomis says, she put you away for a year. Doesn't she deserve to pay for that? A year? <laughs> One year? And that's enough to kill somebody? Really? Mm -hmm. And I love that it's like, no, Cotton really wasn't ever going to shoot Sydney. It was always, you know, a ploy to be like, oh, wink. Um but yeah, the revenge element that I said earlier, Mrs. Loomis is, in my opinion, somewhat vindicated on that, frankly, she needs a really good therapist to talk through this because she has been wronged. She's been wronged. She shouldn't have left her son. And she was in a emotionally devastating place in her life where her husband, you know, was, was uh, leaving her and she lost all of her support network for all I know. And unfortunately, she communicated that into killing people in this movie. But she was fine until her son died. And that was the trauma that broke her back and sent her spiraling. Kind of like Pamela Voorhees in Friday the 13th, who's referenced in this one. Very similar situation where she feels righteous in killing the people who killed her family. And so I feel like that theme is muddled too. Because revenge in general is kind of a tricky theme. I personally have... Uh, a weird... I Because, like, I don't want people to kill each other, obviously. And I believe in justice. But, like, not, not like, vigilanteism. How do you feel about this? Like, like the brave one. These stories where, um, specifically, women experience these horrible traumatic events. And that makes them pick up a gun. Or uh, start to learn how to fight and defend themselves. 
with the aim of finding the person, like not just to be stronger and prepare yourself, but with the aim of finding that person, giving them like their just desserts. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? I'm not a fan. Yeah. I mean, knee-jerk like, reaction. I, I feel like it's always dangerous to have like, because there's some stories where maybe there's a victim of rape or something and before she was raped, she was very like bubbly and outgoing and herself and then afterwards she's changed like forever and i really don't like that element of storytelling where i mean that's something inaccurate i mean it is but i just feel like she's basically being punished for being formally outgoing and now all of a sudden it's like well now she's not like that anymore and And now she doesn't even have the decision to go back yeah even if she wanted to the person who punished her, like, are they not themselves deserving of some kind of punishment? No, they are. I, they definitely are. I'm trying to be devil's advocate. Yeah. I just, and that is. I mean, this is literally that, like a philosophical quandary that people deal with in I law. Mean, it, yeah, you know? it's a. I mean, I think it is true to life. Obviously, like no matter what traumatic experience you experience, you're changed forever. But I don't like the storytelling element where it's like a, it's like a instrument for punish punishment. Interesting. Why? Well, I mean, I don't like, cause I feel like most of the time that happens to females in very violent ways mm-hmm. on screen. And they kind of suggest her being changed is going to push, push her character forward. And I don't think that's like an effective vehicle to push like a character forward. Because that kind of imply inappropriate assumptions on those events in the real world. Mm-hmm. That like if you went through something and you're not a badass afterward, then something's wrong with you. Yeah. Because I agree, and I, I feel like that kind of moves into the next theme that's discussed maybe for a bit in this movie, but that movies cause violence. Mm. And obviously there's a lot of feelings on both parks, but this is my podcast, so I'm going to say that no, movies do not cause violence. Violence causes violence. People are not born evil, but they're also not like... I, I believe it's a nurture thing, and it all comes from a person's like environment. Both school, home, but the movies that they're exposed to, it, it, it takes a weakness of, like, not character, that's so broad, but just like a weakness of, like, you're not thinking for yourself when you're using movies as a justification for your actions, as like, well, I felt that way, and that's what this character in American History X did, mm-hmm. so that's what I'll do out in the real world, and... It's such a common cop-out, like, oh, video games cause violence. Grand Theft Auto made me do it. Or um, uh, I did it because I saw it on uh, CSI and uh, these arguments. And it's perpetuated in this movie, which is so ironic because the movie itself may or may not puts that out into the world by virtue of the ghost face mask is real in real life, in this real life, not just in the movie reality. And so there's that further, like, blurring of reality of what is what is just the movie and what is 
something that like I'm responding to as a character as as a as a person to this character. I'm going to use the movie Joker as an example that everyone leading up to uh, has. Did you see it first of all? Yeah. Okay, great. So if you haven't seen it out there, skip ahead. Joker shines like a a, a light on the mentally ill. Unfortunately, and I hate movies that do this, that imply like, oh, if you have a mental illness and you lose your meds, then you're a crazy person and you're violent and you're just one step away from being a a violent serial killer overnight or a psychopath and blowing up a bank or whatever. Because that's not true. If you have a mental illness and you ran out of your meds, you're not going to blow up a bus just because you sneeze the wrong way. You're still normal. But this movie seems to imply that those of us who don't make as much money and don't have as many friends, and don't have a support network, and may or may not be experiencing clinical mental illness, are one bad day away from from killing everybody. I feel like I moved away from my point. Let me think for a little bit. (laughs) Oh, that was it. That someone watching this movie who identifies with Arthur Fleck's character traits and his situation and the way he's treated would see this as, this is what I'm supposed to do. I mean, the whole movie culminates in one joke that Joker says, that says, what do you get when you have a, when you take a mentally ill loner and take everything away from him and society steps on them and don't care? You get what you deserve. That's the, that's the big joke of Joker. And people appropriately or inappropriately however you look at it see that as like uh uh-oh there are idiots i'm gonna i'm not gonna use any other word there are frankly idiots out there who watch a movie like this and go oh that's how i'm supposed to act that's how i get respect because that's how this character did it when they've completely erased the context of the situation and the fact that this is a monster and so it's, it's, it's brought up in this movie, and it's kind of a theme in general of just, like, movies causing violence. So I've said where I fall on that. How do you feel about people saying that entertainment is inherently dangerous and that you have to be careful with what content you put out there because you never know who it will influence in what way? I'm very against censorship in any way. I feel like it does. Like, violence in movies can affect people. Like, it can have bad effects, because it's kind of referencing, st- like, violence that happens in, you know, real life. Mm-hmm. But also, whoever watches that movie can repeat violence after. I, I mean, watch. you know, you're a screenwriter. Yeah. The point of, a, ideally, a good character is that he has enough universal traits that anyone can watch this and find some part that they identify with. At least in my experience, some of the best characters from films have been written in such a way that they are just broad enough while still being hyper-specific to their story that even if I've never been a machinist, Mm -hmm. I can still look at Christian Bale's character and be like, oh my gosh, I've felt alone and like I was hated by everyone and that I don't belong in the society and maybe I'm projecting, but... (laughs) Uh, How have you, like, have you seen a violent movie? And I'm not trying to, like, put you on the spot, but, like, I personally have never seen a violent movie and then felt vindicated to go out and like set a fire or or break into something and just cause violence because the movie made me feel so well i'm thinking back to to, uh, the last point um sure i think i meant more not just about 
like females who are have like bubbly personalities i think people like females and stories that express their sexuality like that's kind of punished if they're the victim of like a sexual assault totally especially in this era yeah in the 80s and 90s so i yeah i meant to say that it's more about punishment regarding like females who are comfortable in their sexuality and that's that agency is just taken away from them I see what you mean. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, that earlier, that yeah. movies vilify women, God forbid that they should feel comfortable in their bodies to want to have sex with a person. Like mm-hmm. a woman having enough agency to want to have sex with a person is punished for it almost every time in these movies. You're absolutely right. And when they aren't mur- flat out murdered, they're punished for being themselves. And that's awful. Yeah, even in the first movie in Scream, like... Sydney and Stu, not um, uh, Billy. Billy, they have they hook up, and then later on, like in the third act, um, Sydney's cornered by Billy and Stu. Stu and um, I think Sydney says a line like "fuck you" or like something like that, and then and then like Billy or something, I think makes like a snarky remark, and he's like, "Didn't we already do that?" Or something. Oh, like something like I think I do remember that. Really. That like, oh, I let you yeah, it felt like, get close. Yeah. It, and that she's punished for that. Yeah. And that's not fair. And I'm sure that was like her first time having sex yeah. since they're in high school or something. But I just don't understand why people like there's the movies cause violence. Like what about the opposite? Movies cause depression. Movies mm-hmm. cause suicide. Mm-hmm. How come that's never talked about? Like, oh, we can't make a movie. Careful. We can't make a movie too sad or mm-hmm. else people will, will kill themselves. You're right. Like censor- censorship. Maybe this is for another podcast, but like mm-hmm. censorship for, you know, content versus censorship for the creator. You know, like mm-hmm. when people get canceled. But maybe that's for a different thing. Yeah. So we're coming up in the end here. I want to get through uh, what was my favorite quote. Uh, And it's kind of falling into what we were talking about. So number three, my number three favorite quote was Dewey and Randy talking to Gail about the uh, pornography. Dewey says, when did she start smoking? And Randy says, ever since those nude pictures on the internet. And Gail corrects them. It was just my head. It was Jennifer Aniston's body. I laughed out loud when I heard that. Number two, the sorority sister played by Portia de Rossi, uh, who people might recognize from Arrested Development or... Ellen DeGeneres' ex-wife. Poor Ellen. Ex-wife? Yeah, they broke up. They got divorced. When? Uh, I think uh, a year ago or something like that. I didn't even know about that. Yeah, and um, Portia took a lot, a lot of Ellen's, you know, Ellen's empire. And apparently, yeah, took a lot of it. So good for Portia. I'm (laughs) so sad for Ellen, though, because hot damn, Portia, Ellen landed like a a queen of the Nile, that one. (laughs) Um yeah, she come uh, uh, not to objectify women. I try to objectify men equally. Um, brrr, Portia de Rossi's character comes up to Sydney and she's like, "Hi." No, I really mean that. Hi, <laughs> which I thought was great. <laughs> and number one, my favorite quote: Sydney to Mickey says, "Yeah, well, you forget. Uh, you're forgetting one thing about Billy Loomis. What's that? I fucking killed him." Which is so great. <laughs> I I love that because. I'd forgotten it that, oh, yeah, she's the real killer. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, she's the one that saves the day at the last movie. I fucking killed him. So great. Yeah. So that wraps up uh, 
unless you wanted to do Theory Canal, where I talk about what... what uh, it's my podcast. I'm wrapping this up. So that brings us to our final segment, which is uh, when we rate our movie on a scale of one to five thumbs. I'm sorry. You've been such a great guest. I've let this episode get way, just way away from me. It's We're supposed fun. to only be here for about an hour and a half, and it's been two hours. So I have some editing ahead of me. But on a scale of one to five thumbs, one being the worst and five being the best, based on any kind of rubric you want, comparing it to other movies, comparing it to only the movies in this franchise, or simply looking at it in a vacuum. Jackie, what did you think of uh, Scream 2? I would give it three three out of five. Three thumbs, okay. Yeah. And um, do you care to share why? You don't have to. I <laughs> you can just say three and move on. Just think like what we talked about. I think it was they're kind of figuring it out on the fly, and it seemed very disorganized, and I would have liked the characters to be less separate and kind of figure things out on their own together, like consistently throughout the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Cause I think that collaborative like part would have been better, but they were separate the whole time. And that wasn't really like a strong character that like that didn't. Yeah. I think it, it just would have made more sense to have them be together. I feel like I'm in a restaurant where someone just ordered what I was going to order. <laughs> You're taking all the things I was going to say. But they're very right. They're very but, true. Um, yeah, I think having... Ha- was was it Hallie? I think... Uh, yeah. I think having her have more of like a stronger presence would have been better because she's... I think she's in four l- scenes. Yeah. And she's obviously like a very strong influence in Sydney's life. So having her... It'd be nice to give her a last yeah. name. <laughs> Having one. her be more active would have been more strong, especially for Sydney, because they're presumably pretty close. Would so. that have given it one more thumb? <laughs> if that I had think been the so. Case? Yeah. Yeah. I would have given it a stronger score. No worries. Yeah. And then traditionally, we like to award our thumbs to characters in the movie. So you can give all three thumbs to one character, or you can split them up. I really have a soft spot for Randy. Oh. He's my favorite character. <laughs> okay. So, and I'm really upset that he. Me too. I think it was a really killed, bad decision. Got yeah. Sorry. Yeah, but. So all three to Randy. I, I think so. Okay. All right. Well, I liked this movie. I really liked the first Scream, and I think it's a logical extension of the events from that one, where Gail writes a book and it gets turned into a movie, and Sydney kind of has to feel the unfortunate like consequences of a movie being made about her life i would wish that she responded to that in any way emotionally or even like action wise but she just seems to just be this like popsicle stick that walks around as things get thrown at her and she runs around and the most she gets to do is push away her boyfriend jerry o'connell who she doesn't even get to push away all that successfully he wins her back and then he pushes her way uh, she pushes him away again I hate to say that. I hate like, oh, he's pushing, she's pushing him away. It's like, no, she needs space. Give her her space. She's a person who needs space. Mm. I frankly would have loved to see the original script, how this was intended to be, instead of frantically rewriting in a way that like is, ooh, different enough than the original that still uh, is going to make us money. Gail has a ton to do and doesn't really get to celebrate it at the end. She's pushed away for Sydney to barely even get to make a decision. She's going, she's running around chopping like uh, uh, 
ropes and stuff like that. And listen to me. I'm literally talking about the beginnings and the ends of this movie because those are the best parts to me. The middle is this just weird running around of, ooh, do you think he did it? Oh, I think she did it. Maybe they did it. Who did it? Who's And people just keep dying. And it's it's... It's not rewarding. It's not a it's not a rewarding adventure. It's a slog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the thing that ultimately salvages all of this is that family dynamic of Mrs. Loomis screaming, "You killed my son." And her immediate knee jerk to Sydney saying even one disparaging remark about him and finally like her unfortunate demise like she she's a savvy person and she doesn't get i guess she's rewarded that she kills all of sydney's friends but at the end of the day Wes craven he made a visually interesting movie with very little content Mm -hmm. and for that i'm also going to give this movie only three thumbs because it's not terrible it's better than a lot of the movies we've done on here i can at least say what happens in this movie there's some movies where i can't even tell you what happened so I'm going to give it three thumbs, and I'm going to award my thumbs. I'm going to give one to Wes Craven, big Mm. time, wherever he is, up in hell or wherever. I'm going to give him one thumb because he's going to need it. I'm going to give another thumb to Nev Campbell because, you know what? No, I'm not going to give one to her. I'm going to save that one, and instead I'm going to give it to Jada Pinkett for having such a tiny role in this movie, but cementing the idea that there are no small roles only small actors and Mm. she takes that role and owns it Mm -hmm. and it's pretty much the last thing that a a woman gets to do in this movie (laughs) other than shoot or get shot um but or escape a car i guess is a harrowing situation but once again that happens to her and then she just kind of has to escape it so i'm gonna give one to uh Jada Pinkett, and I'm going to give the last one to Timothy Oliphant, because he's barely in this movie, but I love him, and he went on to be in Santa Clarita Diet with Drew Barrymore, so he's doing just fine, but I'm going to give him a thumb anyway. (laughs) So that's it. That finishes our episode of Scream 2 from 1997. Jackie, where can people find you online if they want to follow what you're doing? You can follow me on Twitter. Um, My handle is Jackie... Uh, J-A-C-K-I-E underscore Borwick, B-O-R-W-I-C-K. Perfect. We'll be sure to put that in the episode description so that everyone knows exactly where to find you. Any final remarks before we say goodbye? Well, like you said, just with Jada and Timothy, like, it's really nice to look back at these films and to see how, where these, like, giants in the film industry, like, where they had their start and to see how far they've come and also they look very young so it's (laughs) very funny to see like what they look like back then so yeah no that's great because horror is like a jumping off point for a lot of actors you can go back as far Mm -hmm. as uh, a night around elm street or friday the 13th and you got johnny depp and kevin bacon respectively making their first film roles and now they've catapulted onto a superstardom and uh, i can't think of a better way to go out on the idea that Horror is the beginning of a career that could skyrocket into more horror. (laughs) Or whatever. The sky's the limit. But until next time, stay scary out there. Have a gory day.